you know, why do all of these different opinions exist? And do we actually understand what an optimal diet looks like? And if we do, what is that? There does seem to be some resistance, and it's the same in all diet tribes, to acknowledging that maybe this diet is not perfect in all ways. Thinking about the the optimal diet today, we have to broaden our lens. I went on to discover that, sure, our genes do have some say, but we have a lot more control than we're often led to believe. Welcome to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast, where we meet the world's top experts to explore the secrets of health, mindset, longevity, and so much more. Are you ready to take charge of your existence and biohack your life? This show is for you. Please keep in mind, we're not dispensing medical advice and are not responsible for any outcomes you may experience from implementing tactics lying herein. Are you ready? Let's do this. Welcome back to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. Friends, I am so excited about today's episode. It is one of those episodes that I so thoroughly enjoyed the conversation that immediately after recording, we decided to record a part two. That's how you know there's a lot of good content and you are talking to a wonderful guest. Simon Hill is just so incredible. I know a lot of my audience is paleo and keto and may eat a diet very inclusive of animal products. And I love to also engage with and really pick the brains of people who are very steeped in the plant-based world. And what I really love about Simon is he is so comprehensive, so nuanced, very approachable and kind, very aware that different things work for different people. So it was really nice to have this nuanced conversation with him about plant-based diets. I cannot recommend enough checking out his book, The Proof is in the Plants. And like I just said, he will be coming back for a part two that I am super excited about in the coming months. The show notes for today's episode will be at melanieavalon.com slash Simon Hill. Those show notes will have a full transcript, so definitely check that out. There will be two episode giveaways for this episode. One will be in my Facebook group, IF Biohackers, Intermittent Fasting plus Real Foods plus Life. Find the pinned announcement post and comment something you learned or something that resonated with you or something that you think about this episode. I am dying to hear your opinions on that post to enter to win something that I love. And then there will be another giveaway on my Instagram. Find the Friday announcement post there. And again, comment to enter to win something that I love. I have a very exciting announcement, friends. I have officially launched a TikTok channel. I've been on Instagram for a while, but it is time for TikTok. And with the channel, I'm going to be posting daily, very high quality, awesome biohacking content, tips and tricks, things from my life. And I really want to bring the glam to biohacking because I feel like biohacking can be very male-centric, or focused on a certain type of person, and I just want to break that stereotype and bring all the sparkles. So please join me there. My handle is Melanie Avalon Official. Please let me know what you'd like to see from me, what you think of the content. I do feel pretty shy about it, so please join me so that we can be friends and just go on the most epic biohacking adventure. Okay, friends, spirulina update. It is still coming. I know it's been taking a while. It's just because I want to make the most ideal spirulina tablets on the market, ones that are tested for purity and potency and to be free of all pesticides and just the highest quality. So we've got that spirulina source. It tastes awesome. The issue we're experiencing is that in order to make it into tablets, it requires another ingredient. If you are currently taking spirulina tablets and they say they are one ingredient, They are not one ingredient. There is something in there that is helping to keep that structure. 
So we're trying to figure out which route to go with this. It's really fun because I keep trying different samples. I think I know which one I like the most, but we'll see which one I end up picking. Either way, I really love the taste of our spirulina. It doesn't taste fishy or algae and I really experienced the benefits. So stay tuned for that. In the meantime, you can get my other Avalon X supplements at avalonx.us. Friends, have you jumped on the serapeptase bandwagon yet? That's what I launched with. And to this day, it continues to be my most favorite supplement ever. It's a proteolytic enzyme created by the Japanese silkworm. When you take it in the fasted state, it actually breaks down non-living problematic proteins in your body. So it can help address an array of issues. Like I said, it will clear your sinuses, calm inflammation, it may help reduce cholesterol. Studies have shown it can break down amyloid plaque. It can help alleviate pain and so much more. I take it daily. It is one of the most important supplements in my arsenal. This is the new year. Start it off right. Get some serapeptase. You can get 10% off with the coupon code MELANIEAVALON, as well as a 20% off code when you text AVALONX to 877-861-8318. That's AVALONX to 877-861-8318. Those codes will also work with my fantastic partner, MD Logic Health. For that, go to melanieavalon.com slash mdlogic. And of course, all of my supplements I formulated to be the very best on the market. They're tested multiple times for heavy metals and mold. They're free of all common allergens as well as problematic fillers, which goes back to that whole spirulina formulation issue I was talking about. They come in glass bottles to help prevent leaching of plastics into ourselves and the environment. And we even use the minimal amount of stickiness required for the labels to help with our environmental impact. To get these fantastic products, go to avalonx.us and definitely get on my email list so that you don't miss the Spirulina launch special. For that, go to avalonx.us slash email list. Another resource for you guys if you struggle with food sensitivities like I do, you have got to get my app, Food Sense Guide. It's a comprehensive catalog of over 300 foods for 11 potentially problematic compounds. These include things you may be reacting to, like gluten, lectins, FODMAPs, histamine, oxalates, sulfites, thiols, whether or not something is a nightshade, and so much more. It even includes autoimmune paleo AIP status. You can learn about the compounds, create your own list to share and print, and finally take charge of your food sensitivities. It is a top Apple app, often in the top 10 for the Apple food and drinks charts. And friends, get it now because I'm going to be updating it to a subscription basis soon. So you definitely want to get grandfathered in for life at one super low price. With the subscriptions, by the way, I'm going to be implementing some pretty cool features. So I need to do subscriptions to help support that. So like I said, get it now before we change to subscriptions. You can get it at melanieavalon.com slash foodsenseguide. And one more thing before we jump in. Did you know there are over a thousand compounds found in conventional skincare and makeup in the U.S. that have been banned in Europe due to their toxicity? If you are using conventional skincare and makeup, you are directly putting into your bloodstream toxic compounds, including obesogens, which can literally cause your body to store and gain weight. So if your diet's not working, you might want to think about what's happening with your skincare and makeup, as well as carcinogens linked to cancer. I'm not making this up. And just endocrine disruptors in general, which may mess with our hormones. Thankfully, there's an easy solution to this. There's a company called Beauty Counter, and they were founded on a mission to change this. Every single ingredient is extensively tested to be safe for your skin, so you can truly feel good about what you put on, and their products really work. I am obsessed with their overnight resurfacing peel, their vitamin C serum, they have shampoo and conditioner, 
skincare lines for every skin type, and incredible makeup. It's so amazing that Tina Fey actually wore all beauty counter makeup when she hosted the Golden Globes. So yes, it is high definition camera ready. You can shop with me at beautycounter.com slash Melanie Avalon and use the coupon code cleanforall20 to get 20% off site-wide. You can get the latest updates from me, specials, sales, samples, and so much more on my email list. That's at melanieavalon.com slash cleanbeauty. And you can join me in my Facebook group, Clean Beauty and Safe Skincare with Melanie Avalon. People share product reviews and their experiences, and I do a giveaway every single week in that group as well. And lastly, if you're thinking of making clean beauty and safe skincare a part of your future, like I have, I definitely recommend becoming a Band of Beauty member. It's sort of like the Amazon Prime for clean beauty. You get 10 percent back in product credit, free shipping on qualifying orders, and a welcome gift that is worth way more than the price of the year-long membership. It is totally completely worth it. And I'll put all this information in the show notes. An important announcement, friends. My EMF blocking products are coming. Make sure you don't miss the launch special. For that, get on my email list at melanieavalon.com slash EMF email list. EMFs are actually classified by the IARC as a group 2B, possibly carcinogenic to humans. These are such a problem. We are exposed to them through our Wi-Fi, our cell phones, our AirPods, And they are linked to so many health issues, including anxiety, migraines, headaches, even fertility issues. This is such a problem. Thankfully, you can address your EMF exposure. I'm going to help with that with my Avalon X EMF blocking product line. So again, get on my email list at melanieavalon.com slash EMF email list to check that out. All right, without further ado, please enjoy this wonderful conversation with Simon Hill. Hi friends, welcome back to the show. I am so incredibly excited about the conversation that I am about to have. Okay, a little backstory on this conversation. So as you guys know, one of the main questions in life that I'm haunted by is what is the ideal diet for us humans? And I'm really curious and perplexed by the different findings on like the carnivore side and the keto side on one hand, and then the plant-based sphere on the other. And so I'm always trying to bring on people of all different perspectives and opinions. And since I tend to be more saturated in the low-carb paleo world, even though I actually follow a high-carb diet, I actually listen every single night to Rich Roll's podcast because I just, A, I just find him so calming to listen to. And B, I think it's really helpful because he's very vegan and brings on a lot of perspectives in that camp. And so I love to just keep my mind open to all of that research and all of those thoughts. And so a few months ago now, I'm not sure how long ago it was, but he had on a guest, Simon Hill, who wrote The Proof is in the Plants. And I loved this interview so much. I thought Simon's approach was so nuanced and really open-minded and very comprehensive. And I was like, I just, I got to get him on the podcast. So I put him on my list of people to try to book. And then literally, I mean, it was very soon after that, I posted a post on Instagram from another guest about cholesterol, I think. And Simon commented on it and said that he would love to come on the show and discuss a different perspective on things. And I was so excited. (laughs) So um, yes, so we connected. I got his book. I read it. It was after listening to that interview, it 
was everything I thought it was going to be, which was extremely comprehensive, went into every topic concerning health and a plant-based diet, tons of studies, lots of nuance, very approachable. So I, I have so many notes in front of me and there's so much we could talk about. So I'll stop talking so, so Simon can start talking. But Simon, thank you so much for being here. Melanie, it's a, it's a pleasure and honor to be here and w- with your community. I'm glad that I, I commented on that post. I sometimes refrain from doing that for my, my own personal sanity, but yeah, I'm glad that I, I commented there and yeah, it's a, it's a great pleasure to be with you today. It made my day. And then funny enough, I think a few weeks later, I had on the Scherzeis who wrote The Alzheimer's Solution. They commented, actually, I don't know if it was, it was something about them or it was something from Max Lugavere. There was some sort of discussion and they actually mentioned you in the comments and was like, you have to bring on Simon. And I was like, he's coming on. (laughs) So here we are, long awaited. But in any case, so for the audience who is not familiar with your work, would you like to introduce yourself a little bit, tell them a little bit about your personal story, which you talk about in the book and I've heard in in the interviews, but what led you to where you are today with the plant-based diet? I'll try and keep this short so we can get into the nuance of nutrition. But I became interested in in nutrition a little bit more than a decade ago. My undergraduate degree was a Bachelor of Physiotherapy. I went on and was working with professional athletes in in Australia and really enjoyed that part of my career. I I had a a big interest in nutrition and I realized it was a, a, a large gap in my kind of overall knowledge and and was somewhat hindering my ability to help patients that I was seeing in private practice but also athletes that I was working with who were going through you know injuries and rehabilitation and whatnot and and I felt there was a big gap actually in the the professional football setting that I was working in and a culmination of that and then also my family's history with chronic disease. My dad had a heart attack at age 41 and I was there to witness that. I was the only person with him. And following that event, always had a bit of a limiting belief that, you know, our health was very, very much determined by our genes. And, you know, I, I went on to to discover that, sure, our genes you know, do have some say, but there there is a lot that we can do. We have a lot more control than we're often led to believe and how those genes are expressed, whether they're turned on or, or off, can be very much determined by the way that we navigate through our lives. So at some point, I decided that I wanted to go back to university and really strengthen this weakness of mine that I, I felt compelled to do. And I did a master's in nutrition science at Deakin University, which is has a very strong nutrition program. They're actually one of the, the leading nutrition schools in the world looking at how diet impacts mental health. They have a very big reputation for that. So I went back and, and did that. And and really, you know, you mentioned at the beginning, we we would explore uh, what is the optimal diet, and that's obviously a big interest of yours. And that became something that I was just so fascinated by. You know, you look at the bookshelf, and you you find you pick up one book. It says some some sort of absolute claim, or it's promoting some some form of diet as the best diet. And then you shuffle 
just to the side, maybe take one step and pick up the next book and it will say the exact opposite. And you jump on social media, you're exposed to the same sort of conflicting ideas. You look in mainstream media, again, the narrative's always changing. You know, we know one thing today and then then tomorrow we see something completely contradictory or the opposite. And as a general, as a person in the, the general public, that's very, very confusing to make sense of. And I think that many people are left thinking, well, gosh, you know, if, if, if experts can't agree, we really don't know anything. And they just kind of throw their hands up in the air and probably just continue doing what they've always done, which is the sort of societal norms. And we can talk about what the average diet looks like. So I think that this confusion is not really doing a great service to the, to the, the general public. And so I became fascinated with, you know, why do all of these different opinions exist? And do we actually understand what an optimal diet looks like? And if we do, what is that? And how can we go about perhaps better communicating this to people, be it online or through a book or through mainstream media, to give people a bit more confidence in the decisions that they're making? What food are they buying for their families? What does their breakfast look like, their lunch, their dinner, etc.? I love it so much. And yeah, I was really impressed just by the length of the beginning of your book, talking about this question of why we're so confused and the role of studies and funding and agendas and ethics and perspectives and how that affects everything. And so I'm actually pretty curious. So now that you have done all of this research and and looked at everything, have you come to the idea that there is one right diet or is it still unique? Well, that would require us to define diet. I, I don't believe there's a single dietary label, these labels that we kind of make up, carnivore, vegan, Mediterranean, low-carb, high-carb. I don't believe that a label like that defines optimal diet. I, I do believe there is a set of characteristics that are consistent with good health outcomes, people feeling better, more energized in their day-to-day, but also better long-term health outcomes, so lower risk of chronic disease and also lower risk of premature death. So essentially people living healthier for for longer and we could go into what those characteristics are. But essentially what I'm where I'm getting at with this is that I don't believe that the kind of dietary labels or brands that we've made up and and sort of put into buckets and we see the the diet tribes out there. I, I don't think that's the best way of of going about things in terms of trying to come to this ultimate conclusion of what an optimal diet is. And I know that that is not necessarily what people want to hear because most of us, we, we do want to know what is the silver bullet and I want it as a prescription. Tell me exactly what to eat and I'll follow it. But unfortunately, it's it's much more nuanced than that. And while that can sound like a negative thing, I think it's actually really positive because with a theme or characteristics, and once we unpack those, it actually gives people more choice. And there's wiggle room in there to find a way of eating within that that's consistent with that theme 
that leaves you feeling best is something that you can sustain is something that you can do not just for a week or two weeks but for decades hopefully the rest of your life yeah i could not agree more and like for me so for example the blue zones which is something that people talk about a lot when discussing this so if i if i look at that i see the consistencies being heavily plant based but not exclusively, with the exception of Loma Linda, whole foods type diet, and then a lot of environmental factors and social factors and things like that and exercise. And it's, it's hard to know to what extent, you know, diet versus environment versus lifestyle, you know, social family, all of that is playing a role. But something I found really interesting about your book specifically is, so another common friend of yours is Dr. B who wrote Fiber Fueled. He wrote the foreword for your book, right? Or Yeah, he did. Yep. So a small little nuance there, a difference, for example. So like in his book, he talks about a plant-based diet and how it would ultimately be ideal to be 100% plant-based, but he's still open to you know, people not being quite there, but ideally in this ideal world, you're 100%. In your book, so I love your thoughts on, is the ideal still 100%? Or I think you say in your book that you looked at all the research and you walked away with like an 85% plant-based maybe. I was wondering what you think about that difference between like the 85% and the 100%. Okay. The first part of that question, do I think 100% plant exclusive is the optimal diet and i would just straight out say we don't have the evidence to say that so no i i I wouldn't make that claim and in the book i i write approximately 85 percent and the the reason for that is that when you are eating in that manner it then becomes consistent with that theme so it might help if we if we walk through that theme so And even if we took a step back, if you're okay with it, to kind of how do I think about science and how have I come to that, this conclusion of of this theme and why might there be people out there who are looking at this differently and and have a a very different opinion about what a, a healthy diet looks like. So something that's often, I think, lost in in interpretation of research and in in headlines is when we're looking at at evidence, we we need to understand that not all science is equal. We have preclinical data that can be in a petri dish or an animal model. We have observational research looking at populations of people. You just alluded to the fact there with the blue zones that in such studies, it can be hard to decipher what is leading to their good health. You can see a number of different factors, but it, it, it's impossible to, to be concrete and say, you know, it's, it's 100% their plant-forward diet that is contributing to their longevity because we're also aware that these people are, are not smoking much. They are quite active people. They're not sitting down all day. They, they may consume some alcohol, but they're not consuming a lot. They're not smoking, et cetera, right? But it's still an important piece of evidence, and you can use statistical analysis to adjust for some of these what we call confounding variables. Good good observational study will, will understand those limitations and try to, as best as possible, consider them. And then uh, you have clinical trials, 
And these can be short-term trials that look at what happens when people eat certain foods and how does that affect biomarkers, so things that could change in a matter of weeks like blood pressure or cholesterol or blood glucose control. Or they could be longer term, which are rare because they're very expensive and it can be hard to control people over a long period of time. And if they're longer term, like for example, the Leon Diet Heart Study, which was about four or five years in length, often to in order to see an effect, you have to look at a sick population because if you look at healthy people for four or five years, you might not see much. So these longer-term trials allow you to, to, to potentially look at not just biomarkers but actually look at things like heart attacks or strokes throughout the duration of, of that trial. So where I'm getting at with this is that not, not all science is equal. I, said, I made that point. And we, we, when we're evaluating research, we need to be considering the, the quality of the evidence and also whether as you move up, the evidence hierarchy towards more reliable, valid data, does, does what you see at a sort of preclinical level continue to play out? And so when I'm looking at research, that's exactly what I'm looking at. I'm looking at preclinical data, observational, and the interventions. But I'm not going to place too much stock in mechanistic preclinical data if what we see in, in human health outcome studies is, is different. And then to add a little bit more complexity here, within a study when we're thinking about nutrition and a particular food, we have to always think about a number of different things. If you said to me, are our legumes healthy? My initial response would be, it depends. This is perhaps a bad example because in most cases they are, but let's, let's change that to something a bit more controversial like dairy. Is dairy healthy? Well, it, again, it depends compared to what. So with nutrition, and I think everyone can appreciate this, if you are adding something to your diet, usually it's displacing or removing something. It comes at the cost of something else. Or if you're removing something, like say you're removing dairy from your diet, usually you're going to add something back in. And so the replacement becomes very, very important because that often affects the net outcome. Now, not only do we need to consider compared to what, we need to consider, well, how much? You're asking me, is dairy healthy? And this is actually a really good example because we also need to consider in here, are we talking about low fat, full fat? Are we talking about yogurt, cheese, milk? And then how much? Are we talking about 30 grams a cup, two cups a day, etc.? And so you can quickly see that there is quite a lot of nuance. And all of these things are worthy of consideration when you're evaluating research. If we're not considering this, we can really find evidence to support anything. So with all of that said, when I look at the overall body of, of research, the theme that I see that is consistent with good long-term health in particular is diets that are low in saturated fat. They're not going to be devoid of saturated fat. We can get into that. There's always going to be some saturated fat in the diet. They're low in saturated fat though. They're really hopefully completely excluding trans fats. They have a good amount of polyunsaturated and monounsaturated fats. They're high in fiber 
and they're low in ultra-processed foods. Ultimately, when you eat in a, in a plant-predominant manner, you automatically achieve all of that. And so that's why we see diets like a thoughtfully constructed Mediterranean diet or a pescatarian diet or a well-done vegetarian diet or a whole food plant-based diet. Consistently, we do see in studies that they improve these biomarkers of disease. And in, in the studies that we do have, where there are clinical trials that are long enough, we do see improvements in health outcomes. Hi, friends. Do you want to come hang out with me and Dave Asprey and so many other guests I've had on the show? You simply must come to the 10th annual biohacking conference, May 30th through June 1st in Dallas, Texas. And of course, I have a massive discount code for you guys. I went last year to the one in Orlando and it was one of the most fun times of my entire life. I met and got to hang out with so many guests that I've had on the show. I met so many of you guys. And of course, there's lots of Danger Coffee and Dave Asprey approved meals and dry farm wines. And that's just the social aspect. The conference itself is mind blowing. They have this incredible expo where they have all the biohacking supplements, all the biohacking things. You can learn about them, try samples, meet the creators and founders. If you haven't tried a lot of biohacking things, it's a great chance to actually try them out in person. Things like brain tap, infrared sauna, hyperbaric oxygen chambers, and so much more. There are so many incredible speakers as well. You can hear talks from people I've had on the show like Paul Saladino, Dr. Daniel Amen, Dr. Sarah Gottfried, Dr. Mercola, Dr. Annika Becca, and that is just a few of them. I seriously had the time of my life last year, and I would love to hang out with you guys. And you can get 35% off tickets. Just go to melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference and use the coupon code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. That's melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference with the code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. This code can be used for general admission or for VIP access. Seating is limited. They do sell out. They sold out last year. So get your ticket now. And if you come, definitely let me know because I want to meet you. So hopefully see you guys in Dallas. MelanieAvalon.com slash biohacking conference with coupon code BCMelanie. Get your tickets now. I'll see you guys there. I just want to say I'm so enjoying this conversation because I, I don't think I've had a detailed conversation on this actual concept in all of, all of the episodes that I've had some thoughts to what you just spoke about. So now listeners can probably see why it can be so overwhelming with everything and potentially contradictory. So like, first of all, even the adjusting for confounding factors and stuff. So even that can be complicated because the factors that might be quote confounding might be related to what you're testing. So it's like by adjusting for them, it's hard to know if it's just hard to know if you're correctly uh, testing what you need to be testing with the mechanistic studies and like the trials on mechanisms of action and such. So is that too reductionistic? Like what can we learn from that? So like looking at the effects of saturated fat, you know, on a cell compared to in a human being, can we still draw value from that or how can we know how to interpret that? I think we can still draw value from from mechanistic sort of preclinical data. I'm definitely not suggesting that this is not an important area of science. In fact, my dad is a professor of physiology. He's been doing 
such science for 40 years, publishing in cell and metabolism and circulation. So I'm certainly not someone that would rip into that area of science and say it's not needed. It's important, but it's it's hypothesis generating most of the time. So often that that deep science gives us an understanding of something and we go, hmm, now let's see does that play out in humans? And this is where where it's really, really important because we often think we're smarter than we are. And when you look at a mechanism, say you're looking at a food, certain food or saturated fat, and you're zooming in on one pathway, often these nutrients and compounds affect a myriad of pathways in the body. And so if you just look at one isolated pathway, how can you be sure that exposure to that nutrient or compound how can you be sure that of, of what the net effect is? Because it could be under a microscope, you might be seeing a deleterious or what you think is a deleterious effect of one pathway, but if you were to be able to have visibility of all pathways, you would end up seeing that the net outcome is a positive one. And that's where looking at actual humans and health outcomes becomes really important because it assumes that we're seeing the net effect we, we're, we're seeing what happens to human physiology as a whole when you're exposed to a certain compound. And it means that if we have any kind of blind spots in terms of our mechanistic understanding and, and the mechanistic science, that what we're getting is a more complete picture. And so often what we see is the, the health outcome data, we, we see a finding and we actually don't understand all of the mechanisms. And that's okay because ultimately what is more important to the average person out there is when you eat more of this or less of this, what happens in terms of your biomarkers of disease or what happens in terms of your risk of, say, developing fatty liver or having plaque in your artery, developing atherosclerosis and having a heart attack. So all of that is to say that mechanisms are important. They help further our understanding of things, but they're not essential they're not essential in terms of making public health recommendations. Yeah, I've been thinking about that a lot recently because I recently launched a supplement line and one of the supplements I want to make is berberine. And right now there's this whole debate about berberine versus dihydroberberine, which is an even more isolated form of berberine and it potentially having, I guess, better effects on blood sugar control. But stepping back, I'm like, right, but maybe it's not accounting for other things <laughs> in berberine. It's like the more granular you get looking at a specific action and what might happen from it, it's just harder to know what you're losing or what context. It's like taking a sentence out of a book and trying to understand what the book said. You just can't. And so another question about the timeline of things. So like the word long-term, for example, what actually is long-term? So two questions related to that. You might say, for example, that the carnivore diet, that we don't have long-term studies on it. So it's hard to know, like, at what point would we have long-term? Like, so when would we cross over to that qualifying as long-term? And then a second question, sort of related, is I guess the longest-term study we have is just the evolution of humanity. But even that, it stresses me out that that is so debated. Like, I feel like we should we should know what we were eating for these millions of years, but even that's debated. Like you talk in your book about, for example, I didn't realize this, that people often say that we started using fire and that allowed us to eat 
animal products, and that is what led to our increased brains. But you talk about how there's actually a debate that maybe it was that we started cooking starches with fiber, which I was not aware of that. So (laughs) long-term time. There's, okay, there's a lot to unpack there. I definitely, I definitely think our ancestors ate meat. There's no debating that. There is a lot of debate around the, around the contribution of meat, the contribution of tubers, and what seems to be apparent, and I think, I think Herman Ponser has done probably one of, if not the best jobs at summarizing all of this. He wrote a book called Burn, which I would highly recommend. And I think that what's clear is that what's amazing about humans is our ability to survive on a myriad of diets. And survive's the key word there. But if you look across the world at hunter-gatherer diets, populations living in completely different environments, you see the contribution of animal and plant foods in terms of calories is vastly different in different areas. Some populations have an abundance of calories from animal foods and less from plant foods. Some have the opposite. It can change on a month-to-month, on a seasonal basis as well within those populations. So I think the this idea from, from sort of the carnival crowd that there was one paleo diet I think is a massive oversimplification. And in fact, Herman in his book, he sort of goes back through how the paleo diet was formed in originally from through a, a lot of Lauren Cordain's work. He, he points out that the formulation of, of the paleo diet as a single diet that was sort of relatively low carbohydrate, contained quite a lot of animal foods, originated through Lauren going through the Murdoch Atlas. That was at least that was the, the, the source that he cited in his formulation. And within that atlas, there were a number of different diets documented for hunter-gatherer tribes. What Lauren did was, and I'm not suggesting that he was being disingenuous, I just think that he oversimplified things because often an oversimplified message is an easier message for the general public to grasp. But today, I feel like people want more information. And what he did was he looked at all of these different diets from hunter-gatherers and it actually didn't tell you in the in the atlas, you can look at it, the the, the percentage of calories from animals and plants it just sort of ranked them as to how important they were and he sort of took that and translated it to calories somehow which i'm not sure if that can be done accurately that was the first thing that's interesting but what where it gets more interesting is so there was this huge variance in the types of foods people were eating he then took an average across the world to create the paleo diet that overlooks what I mentioned at the start is probably the most important takeaway is that the diets vary greatly around the world and, and, and really what this suggests is, is, is how incredible it is that humans can survive and adapt to a number of different types of diets in terms of the calories coming from, from plant foods and, and animal foods. So that's kind of my thoughts on the paleo diet. I'm not sure that there is a singular paleo diet. And, and, and also I think that, and, and Lauren Cordain himself has published on this, but the, the types of meat that, that would have been consumed based on our, our knowledge of, of the types of animals that people were eating were 
a lot lower in saturated fat than many of the foods that we see today people eating in in that sort of crowd so that's another thing to kind of just be cognizant of and and Lauren Cordain has actually published a, a paper I can I'll send you the reference on this point exactly and on his thoughts on on cholesterol which I thought was really really interesting in terms of long term you know how much long term data do we need on the carnivore diet Look, it'd be great to have something that that shows decades of of information, but I'm not sure that we need it. You know, I think this is a really, really interesting discussion around the carnival diet because there's no denying that people are improving their health, at least in the short term. I'm sure you would agree with that. You know, there's enough anecdotes for us to to acknowledge that you know people seem to be feeling better, or at least certain people that are doing this. And I think there are some some reasons that can can explain that. Now, one of the big inconvenient things for this group is is what this diet does to lipids, and and I think there are several folks who are kind of prominent in this space that want to downplay that because it is a bit of an inconvenient truth. You know, people are losing some weight and feeling better, but they're lipids are kind of moving in, in in the wrong direction and that needs to be either accepted or explained away. I think it should be accepted and 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 really what I would love to see within this group is the same thing that I'd love to see in the in the plant exclusive vegan group is just acknowledging that you know your diet can work and be great but it can still have limitations. And and when you acknowledge that limitation and if we're thinking about the carnivore diet here the fact that it raises ApoB-containing lipoproteins, not for everyone but for most people, quite considerably, if you acknowledge that as a limitation, then you go, okay, well, this diet's working in a number of different ways and, and there's some benefit. This is a limitation. How do we want to address that? And in that case, that can be addressed through modification of the style of carnivore diet, through manipulating things like the, the types of fat that are being consumed, or it could be through treatment with drugs that we know there, there is a lot of evidence to show that they are beneficial. But there does seem to be some resistance within that diet tribe, and it's the same in all diet tribes, to acknowledging that maybe this diet is not perfect in all ways, and rather than kind of trying to turn a blind eye to the limitations Let's look at them and work out what is the best path forward to to help people within this community achieve their best health. I think that is a fantastic perspective. And I can hear my audience probably getting just really excited to listen to this because a lot of, a lot of the feedback I get is you're always bringing on people of all different perspectives and they're saying one thing and then I hear another and how do I know, you know what's true? And I think that a lot about what you just said about the carnivore diet. Yeah, people often will go on carnivore and like you said, have a unfavorable, well, they would say, I guess that it's not unfavorable, but a seemingly unfavorable response in their lipid panel. And so the thought I've always had is, well, maybe you could, like you, you just said this, so I'm repeating what you said, but I often think you, you could stay carnivore and you could adjust it and probably see a different effect and kind of have the best of both worlds. So here's a question as well. People often say, and this taps into what we were just talking about with the evolution, people often say that we should eat like the way we evolved because that would be the best diet to support longevity. But something I think about is 
that evolutionarily, it might inform the diet that we're most suited for to live, but I don't know that our genetics or epigenetics or evolution, I don't know that longevity was their goal. It seems like the goal was reproduction and then not so much. <laughs> so it's like, I actually don't have a problem because some people will say, I was having a conversation with my friend the other day about an entirely 100% vegan diet. And they were saying, well, that's you know not natural and it might require supplementation. And my thoughts to that are, okay, like how is it a problem to have a diet where you actually optimize it yourself through a manner that you might not have evolutionarily naturally followed, if that makes sense? Does that make sense? Yeah. There's, I mean, there's, there's something called the naturalistic fallacy, which assumes that kind of what, what, whatever is natural is always best for us. And, and this kind of weaves into this conversation. And I, and I would agree with you. I think that, I think that evolution and anthropology is interesting and I think it adds to the overall body of, of evidence for sure. But I do think we need to be cognizant of the fact that Homo erectus, he, he or she was not eating to maximize their health span and lifespan. And we just kind of went over this and the fact that humans could adapt to many different environments. Homo erectus was very much eating to survive. And as you say, the goal being to get to an age where, or, or the primary goal, I should say, there is a little bit of nuance in this, but the primary goal being to get to an age where you can procreate. Okay, because that is is going to be beneficial to to Homo sapiens from an evolutionary perspective. The goal not being to select foods that are going to lower your risk of chronic disease. That's a very very different question, and that's why thinking about the the optimal diet today, we have to broaden our lens. We can't just look at the the data that we have from the foods that our ancestors ate. It's interesting and, and, and important, but we have to include all of the modern data points that we have. And so there, there is really no reason why a diet with certain supplements might not, might not be the best diet, the most optimal diet. It might turn out that a diet with the addition of certain isolated supplements is the key to longevity. And, you know, the, the kind of, that remains to be fully understood, but I think it, it's, it's an important point that we need to be open-minded about the fact that that ma that might be the key forward. Do you know, I actually don't think I've looked this up. Have there been studies on longevity and if you've had, I guess this might just be for women, if you've had children or not? Talking about confounding factors, you would have to control for people who have a child and then maybe become metabolically unhealthy, you know, after that. So like somebody who regains all of their metabolic health pre and post child. Like I wonder if their lifespan is shorter because they had the baby. It's a great question. Yeah. That's something I'd have to look at. I would I would not be able to give you an accurate answer right, right now, but I agree it's very interesting. I'll have to add it to the research list. So if we had like a baby and we put them in a room with access to, and I'm trying to decide if this thought experiment should include like processed food or not. When we're born, do you think it's a blank slate as far as having an intuition as to what foods nourish us? Or is there, you know, 
like genetic factors, gut microbiome factors. I just wonder at what point does our cravings and desires become learned versus intuitive? Also a very, very good question. And so if, if you had a child with, and you put, surrounded them with a whole lot of different foods, would they make the right choices? Would they automatically balance out their nutrition and, and achieve nutritional adequacy? There's actually been a study on this. Yeah. There's, and the guys from University of Sydney who wrote a book called Eat Like the Animals, uh, Stephen Simpson, one of the authors, he's looked at this, but more, more, more looking at animals. And they do tend to, to balance things out when they're in an environment that's not manipulated. That's the key. So our environment today has been heavily manipulated and, you know, 42 to 60% of the average person's calories are coming from ultra processed foods. And I would argue that nature cannot compete with these foods. So if you were to, to expose a young child to a, uh, an environment with those foods, I think their radar, their intuition would be off. Essentially, their appetite would become, or their, their regulatory system that controls appetite would become hijacked. So I think there is a, enough evidence for us to, to kind of conclude that. And yeah, if a child on their own accord was able enough to, to select their foods and, and, and access them, I think they would make fairly decent decisions if they're in a, a, a sort of quote-unquote natural environment. For their development, I'm not sure whether they would be making the dis- best decisions for their longevity. Hi, friends. Okay, so I'm a little bit embarrassed because I've been talking for so long about red light and near-infrared therapy, which is so, so important. However, I kind of left out something really important about light. So as you guys know, I've been talking about red light and near-infrared for so long. And at the same time, during the day, I was using a bright, sad light. So it's those white lights that help with waking you up, help with your circadian rhythm. They're used to combat mood issues and depression. So I have a really bright white one of those at my desk. A few things about that. I knew it helped wake me up and kept me stimulated, but I wasn't sure if it had any detrimental effects using it. And then two, I was also wondering if by just focusing on red and near-infrared light, was I somehow missing something in the full spectrum of light? Guess what? I was. And guess what? I found the solution and guess what? I have a discount for you guys. So the founder of a company called Soulshine reached out to me and he was like, do you know about the importance of full spectrum light? And I was like, you know what? I've been wondering about this for quite a while. Please educate me. Oh my goodness. This man blew my mind. I talk a lot about the problems of blue light. That said, we evolved in natural full spectrum sunlight that our genes are programmed to respond to. And today we do not spend enough time in that light. A lot of us don't go outside and we're overexposed to blue light. It's a problem. And then to make things even more problematic, the common sad lights that I was talking about that are bright white, they actually do not contain the full spectrum light. They filter out certain wavelengths and they're high in blue light. So just like I thought, It was not doing my health many services. There is only one company I have found, or I guess that found me, that makes a full spectrum white light device. So the Soul Light Systems include the fullest spectrum of visible and invisible near-infrared light with traces of UV light. Yep, that's right, because you need all of that as well. Don't worry, 
It's not an exuberant amount that's going to cause a problem. It's just a tiny little dose that your body actually needs. You can use these lights to fix your circadian rhythm and properly stimulate your brain's suprachiasmatic nucleus or SCN in a way that it was supposed to be stimulated. It's kind of like the natural spectral diet. Because yes, you may be suffering from malillumination. Did you know that your entire bloodstream actually filters through your eyes in a relatively short amount of time? That's the only way your blood is exposed to the outside world. So when we expose our eyes to this light, it actually can have beneficial effects on our blood. That is crazy. It helps with skin, with mood. This is the light that I wasn't thinking about that we need. I love Soulshine's light therapy devices. I do use it in combination with my red and near-infrared light devices as well so that I can fully bathe my body in the best light that is so helpful for my sleep, for my stress, for my metabolism, for my immunity, for my health, so many things. They have so many different device options. They have one that I love that kind of looks like a juve and I sit it on my desk and it has options for the full spectrum light, which is that bright white light, as well as an ear infrared option. So what I do is I do a session of the full spectrum light in the morning and then I run the near infrared to help counteract the negative blue light around me. They also have stands with bulbs that you can get. I've been using some of those on my plants. I am just so grateful that Ken at Soulshine found me because I was missing out on such a key aspect of light and I had no idea. And you can get 10% off at melanieavalon.com slash soulshine. That's S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E with the code melanieavalon. So melanieavalon.com slash soulshine, S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E with the code melanieavalon for 10% off. It's really helped my mood, my energy, my sleep, so many things. I think you guys will love it. So again, go to melanieavalon.com slash soulshine, S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E and use the coupon code melanieavalon to get 10% off site-wide. And we'll put all this information in the show notes. Something I often think about related to this question is, for example, at least in the animal sphere, they'll often say that liver is like the superfood, that it has, you know, all of this nutrition. And my question is, it's very rare that I meet somebody who, even people in like in the paleo world, who like the taste of just like plain raw liver. And I'm like, why is that? Like if, if it's, especially people who have quote, who aren't eating processed foods. So me, for example, like I eat all whole foods. I even went through a period where I was very anemic, which is maybe something we can talk about. And at that time I was like, you know what? I'm anemic. There is no reason that liver shouldn't taste amazing to me. And it, it just didn't. And I'm haunted by like, is that completely cultural? Where did my intuition go with that? Well, I think the same argument could exist on the other side of the spectrum in that there would be many kids and probably adults that have an aversion to say broccoli or certain green vegetables, right? So it kind of works both ways. And it's, a, it's an interesting question. Is that a result of what we've been exposed to and the hyperpalatable foods, but also the way society thinks about certain foods? I'm not sure I have the perfect answer, but I would presume if you have someone who is not exposed to our current environment where there is just so many delicious foods available, then foods like broccoli and liver are probably more palatable. Actually, I'm glad you brought up the broccoli because that is something that the carnivore sphere people will say a lot. As an example, they'll say that, or as quote evidence, they'll say that, you know, all kids basically don't like green vegetables and it's not until later. So they say it's like we accustom ourselves to this taste and that's due to the anti-nutrients and such in broccoli. Where do you fall on 
plant anti-nutrients. There are certain foods, if overdone, for example, if you consume too much spinach, you could end up with kidney stones. You'd have to consume a lot, though. A lot of this comes down to exposure. And, you know, for example, lectins is one that gets thrown up a lot, right? I've had Dr. Gundry on the show twice. Yeah. So how should I phrase this? I think Dr. Gundry has some some really great things to say. So I don't want to come across as kind of just having a go at him generally. We would disagree on lectins a bit though. And where where I think he puts a lot of his emphasis is on the the preclinical mechanistic data. So what's what happens if you put lectins, you know, into a cell that's been removed from the body in a petri dish kind of thing. That level of evidence we need to be thinking about very critically. And there's a few reasons for that. I went I mentioned how important exposure is before whenever we're looking at something. If if we're talking about whether a food is healthy or not, critical to that is how much are we being exposed to. And in this mechanistic level of science, what's really easy to do is to expose a cell to something like lectins at a level that it would never be exposed to in the human body through a human diet. So I could expose these cells to to an, uh, the amount of of lectins, you know, magnitudes higher than what you would ever be exposed to through eating legumes, for example. And we see that we see you know many many mechanistic studies that show that lectins could be problematic. The exposure level is astronomical. Now. What I like to explain to people here is that you can have a compound like lectins or any compound that can be healthy at a certain level of exposure, but then it can also be harmful at a certain level of exposure. Let's take oxygen for an example. So I think that most of us would agree breathing in air that contains oxygen is a good thing. We require it. It sustains us, right? It's critical to the production of, of energy and the maintenance of life. But if I was to give you 100% oxygen, you would soon pass out and eventually you would die. So the oxygen concentration in air, I think, is 21%, maybe 26 But if I expose you to 100% oxygen, it becomes deleterious. That same compound that's healthy for us ramped up at a certain exposure level becomes harmful. Now, with that in mind, the fact that 100% oxygen is harmful to us, none of us are going around saying, don't breathe air, are we? <laughs> we, we, we the common sense approach is, okay, 100% oxygen is bad, but 21% in, in, in air is beneficial for us. I'm going to breathe today. Now, with lectins, so we see this extreme exposure in, in mechanistic petri-level science can cause some deleterious effects to cells, can increase you know, markers of inflammation, etc. Now, what about in humans? Well, if we look at population data and you look at populations who are consuming foods that contain lectins, and, and sure, they're, they're cooking them and, and soaking, you know, soak beans and, and cook them, which does remove or minimize, reduce some of the lectins, but there's still lectins in these foods. These, these people have very good health outcomes. And if lectins were as kind of poisonous as, as they're often portrayed to be, then 
we, we should expect to see these cultures and populations who, who eat a lot of lectin-containing foods, we should expect to see higher incidence of autoimmune conditions or conditions related to gut barrier breakdown. We should expect to see poorer health, but in fact, we see the opposite. So I think that that alarm bells go off for me when when a lot of this is derived from mechanistic data where there is a very, very extreme exposure amount. And I, I think we just need to be careful over-extrapolating from that to, to human health. So we started this, I guess, thinking about anti-nutrients. I would just posit the question to everyone when, with regards to anti-nutrients is if you're if a claim is being made and it's based on something that's that's mechanistic that's interesting but remember your food is a matrix it's not just a single nutrient be that that a cell is being exposed to or a compound it is a culmination of nutrients and compounds phytochemicals that all then together create a net outcome a net effect on your physiology so we have to be careful not getting too reductionist. There are certain compounds in, in foods that could be considered anti-nutrient. But again, what I'm most concerned with is when you eat those foods, sure, they might contain those, but they contain a number of other things as well. What's the net effect on your physiology and your health? And so I ask to, to kind of remember to zoom back out. Yeah, I love that so much. I developed an app called Food Sense Guide, and it actually looks at 11 different compounds in foods and shows their levels in different foods. I was researching lectins for it because it has lectins, and I was actually very surprised by the overwhelming lack of <laughs> studies that I could find on lectins. And then also like the fact that lectins a, are in everything, including meat, and on the flip side, sometimes linked to health improvements. So I was like, okay, well, <laughs> that's complicated, but also in the same sphere. So there have been a few different categories of food that I've actually changed my perspective on pretty intensely. First, well, back in my standard American diet days, I didn't really give credence to anything being <laughs> necessarily good or bad. But when I first went paleo, I, you know, I, I went to this world where some foods I thought were just really bad. But now I've stepped back and tried to objectively look at some of these things. And it's a little bit different than what I've been thinking. So for example, like grains, if you just go to Google Scholar and type in grains and health and try not to be biased in your interpretation, it's hard to make the argument that grains are as bad as I think we make them out to be. And that was a big epiphany I had relatively recently, actually. Gluten is a whole nother, <laughs> whole nother issue. You do talk about gluten in the book. What do you think about gluten and are we being reductionistic with it? Is it a problem? It's a big hot topic for people. I think it's certainly a problem for those with celiac. Outside of a kind of wheat allergy or celiac, I think there probably are a number of people that are removing gluten that perhaps don't need to. And I guess where I sit on this is that if you, for whatever reason, feel you want to remove gluten, I have no problem with that. I would just suggest that you really consider what you're replacing that with, because this is where people run into problems. If you're 
going gluten-free and then buying a lot of the ultra-processed gluten-free foods that have a bit of a halo effect, you know, these are really not health foods, then I think you might be shifting your overall dietary pattern in an unfavorable direction if you are replacing these gluten-containing foods, however, with gluten-free whole grains like buckwheat or brown rice or black rice, then then I think that's perfectly fine. So really it comes down to, you know, personal preference. I'm I'm okay with with someone who says they want to adopt a, a gluten-free diet. I just think that some thought into the replacement is probably important. But I, I would side with the kind of idea that Gluten, I think, has been a little bit unfairly demonized. I'm not sure that it is the cause of all of the gut inflammation that that perhaps some have have kind of thought, but certainly for certain individuals, it, it could be an issue. And, and we haven't spoken about the microbiome here or personalization, but I'm a, a very big advocate of personalized nutrition, and and I do think the microbiome is central to that, and you know, I think it would be foolish for us to think that that each of us are going to respond to the exact same food in the same manner. It's interesting with the gluten because it's like there was this whole movement of gluten-free. Then there was like an anti-gluten-free movement, which I'm so glad you said this, that you're okay with people being gluten-free because now there's sort of a backlash where they'll say, oh, you shouldn't be gluten-free because gluten is not an issue at all. But some people seem to genuinely feel better on gluten-free. So I think it's nice to just be open to people, like you said, finding what works for them and and paying attention to how it affects them and making sure that they're getting what they need. Yeah. I, look, I, I, I see that kind of some of that rhetoric online and around really trying to hammer home this point that no, gluten's been demonized and you shouldn't worry about it. You should change your diet. But I also just kind of take the position that, look, gluten's not necessary. It's not essential. So if you, if you want to remove it, there are some, some, some great substitutes and options and, and you can certainly achieve optimal health and a healthy dietary pattern without gluten in your diet. I just don't think we need to demonize it at the same time. It's funny. I was gluten-free for years before I actually tested to see if I was celiac or whatever it may be. I tested negative for celiac, but I've been gluten-free for so long. I'm not sure if it's accurate, but I did test for a wheat allergy. So I was like, okay, <laughs> I can do this and not have to like make it, <laughs> make an excuse. But so speaking to the microbiome, such a frontier of stuff that we just don't even remotely understand. But I was reading, this is a kind of a nuanced random rabbit hole of the microbiome. But one of the things that I'm really fascinated by is TMAO, for example. You talk about that in your book. And I was reading one of the studies that you referenced, and it was so fascinating because it was looking at, so for listeners who are not familiar, or maybe you can tell listeners a little bit about TMAO and what it is, but high levels are correlated to health issues. One of the studies that you referenced, they actually had people on a plant-based, or I think I think it was I think it was a vegan diet. It was a plant-based diet compared to an animal diet and testing TMAO levels. The animal diet increased TMAO levels, but not if it was the arm that ate it after having done the plant-based diet first. So it was sort of like, oh, maybe maybe changes in the gut microbiome are actually, you know playing a role here. And, and like, that's an example of like a context that I think is just, we 
you know, we don't take in the whole context of things. So like TMAO, for example, like the role of other foods. But yeah, do you have TMAO thoughts? Yeah. And I mean, that's even a good, the role of other foods and I guess complementary foods and overall diet, That's this is a really interesting conversation, particularly, you know, one thing that, uh, that and we can come back to this if you want, but or not in a future episode is, you know, red meat and risk of cancer and how potentially the inclusion of plants may modulate that risk, which I think is a, a fascinating thing. But in, in this in this instance, we're talking about the production of TMA through the microbiome and then that actually goes into circulation and in the liver you produce TMAO, which is, as you say, is associated with this increased risk of cardiovascular disease, type 2 diabetes. Now, what we see is that people who have been eating you know, plant-based, more, more plant foods, they have a reduced capacity to produce TMA, which means less TMAO in circulation. Now, I must say I didn't expand on this in my book and one of the reasons for that was I kind of was sitting on the fence as to you know how important is this marker and since the the book was published I've I've read some published Mendelian randomization studies which look at genetics and they're really really these are really fascinating studies and the same applies for elevated levels of LDL cholesterol or ApoB-containing lipoproteins. There's a bunch of these studies looking at that. But in this instance, looking at genetic studies, looking at people who, who are have genetically elevated levels of TMAO, we don't see increased risk of cardiovascular disease. And so for me, I think the jury is still a little bit out in terms of is TMAO is it just associated with cardiovascular disease, but it's not actually involved in the causal, in the development of it? I'm leaning towards that right now, which doesn't mean it's a it's a, a marker that we shouldn't look at. I'm just not sure whether it in and of itself is causing or contributing to cardiovascular disease. And an example that I would use that's similar to that is HDL cholesterol. So, so we know that people who have elevated HDL cholesterol have lower risk of cardiovascular disease. However, we've, we've had a bunch of trials that have, that have used drugs to raise HDL that have failed. They haven't lowered risk of cardiovascular uh, events in those people. And so what, where we are currently with HDL is that it is certainly associated with cardiovascular disease, but we don't think it's causal. We don't think it's, it's increasing HDL is, is, directly lowering cardiovascular disease it it seems to be more of just an association so all that to say with tmao and 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 this current conversation i think that research that what you pointed to which i put in the book i think it's very interesting association but i am somewhat reluctant to say right now that you know people that are eating more meat and producing more TMAO that that is directly causing cardiovascular disease I'm, I'm just not sure about that hi friends one of the most valuable things that i do every single night of my life is my infrared sauna session the brand that i use is sunlighten i did a lot of research on infrared saunas before deciding on them their saunas are so high quality they're low emf 
And what I really love is they have a solo unit. That's what I have. And it's really great if you live in a small apartment, might be moving. It's just really an amazing investment. And they have incredible deals and offers on it right now. You can actually get up to $200 off with the code Melanie Avalon. Or if you're talking to a rep, just tell them that I sent you. And like I said, that will be up to $200 off. And that will also get you $99 shipping. Normally the shipping is like $600. So that's a really, really big deal. And if you do purchase Asana, forward your proof of purchase to podcast at melanieavalon.com. And I will also send you a signed copy of my book, What, When, Why. If you'd like to learn more about the science of sauna, two resources. I interviewed the founder of Sunlighten, Connie Zach. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. And then I also recently did an epic blog post all about the science of sauna. We'll also put that in the show notes. All right, now back to the show. And fish, that's preformed TMAO, right? Is there a difference between that, like taking it in preformed versus creating it yourself? Not really, but that also... I guess, adds weight to this idea that maybe it's not causal. And I say that because fish consumption is associated with reduced risk of cardiovascular disease. So that's another thing that's a little difficult to explain if you take the position that TMAO is directly causing cardiovascular disease. It's another, it's another kind of finding that would be hard to reconcile. So it's, it's another piece of evidence that sort of just leaves me thinking, hmm, I think TMAO, it, certainly the association is there. People with elevated TMAO, higher risk of cardiovascular disease. But I think it might be an innocent bystander. I'm not sure that it's actually involved in the kind of pathology. And then speaking to the, the HDL piece, I find this really interesting, at least in my own panel, because I like to do either high carb, low fat, or low carb, not really high fat, but like low carb, higher fat. I don't like to do high carb, high fat at the same time. What's interesting is I monitor my blood lipids pretty regularly. And if I do the lower carb, higher fat approach, my HDL will raise, but so will my LDL. And then if I switch to the low fat, it's like the HDL drops but so does the LDL. So it's like, I don't know how to make the HDL go up and the LDL go down. So I'm very, very fascinated. There's so much research. And I mean, this could be like an hours and hours long conversation and there's so many opinions, but I'm very haunted by the correlation versus causation and the role of both LDL and HDL in health. It's just a lot. I think people are very confused. (laughs) Yeah, I would I would say I just mentioned the HDL. I, I think that HDL right now, if you look at the all of the guidelines and the latest evidence on HDL, I would say that the absolute amount of HDL or any sort of ratio to do with HDL, we really can't use that as a way of determining risk of cardiovascular disease. And and that is off the back of we had this hypothesis, observational studies showed high HDL is associated with lower risk of cardiovascular disease. That, that hypothesis then went on to lead to the development of certain drugs that would raise HDL, took people that were at risk of cardiovascular disease, jacked their HDL up, did not see any protection. What that tells us is that, that maybe the amount of HDL is not actually as important as we thought it was. And now there's a bunch of researchers looking at HDL function. It's going to be a whole nother topic to come in, in, in future years. And whereas with LDL, it's a different story. So 
I should say I'm going to talk about LDL cholesterol here, but really I mean ApoB containing lipoproteins for any of the kind of lipid specialists out there. I'm simplifying this a little bit. But LDL cholesterol, we have genetic data, so we know very clearly that over 50 different genetic variants that increase LDL cholesterol through different pathways, depending on the extent of that increase, the magnitude of that increase, there will be a, an increase in risk of coronary heart disease, and it's linear. The higher that LDL cholesterol goes up, the greater the risk. And in fact, if you look at folks with uh, familial hypercholesterolemia, whether it's heterozygous or homozygous, you know, particularly homozygous where someone could have an LDL cholesterol 500 to 700, if left untreated, they will often develop severe atherosclerosis and heart disease in their t- teenage years. So those are you know, genetic points that we have. And then we have the observational research, which shows the association, higher LDL cholesterol, higher risk of coronary heart disease. And then it's further strengthened by clinical trials that lower LDL cholesterol through different pathways, PCSK9 drugs, We've got statins, azetamide. There's a whole bunch of different drugs that work on different pathways to reduce LDL cholesterol, and you see a reduction in cardiovascular events, and you see regression of plaque once you get down to to a certain level. So when you add all of that up, it, it becomes a very compelling case to to kind of lead you to to believing or or concluding i should say that ldl is causal and more specifically that apob containing lipoproteins are necessary for the development of atherosclerosis and certainly that's my position i would find it hard to come to a different position today and i do think also one thing to add to that that i think is really really important is you know, often you could look at a, a a drug trial and you could look at the kind of risk reduction and might think it's not a huge risk reduction, but we have to keep something in mind here. When we're talking about LDL cholesterol, increasing risk of coronary heart disease, or we're talking about ApoB more specifically, lifetime exposure is really, really important. So what we actually see is that the kids that have these genetic mutations that increases their LDL cholesterol, their, their increased risk of coronary heart disease is, is magnitudes higher than what you see in an observational study. And also their benefit of reducing is, is magnitudes greater because you can get them earlier in life. Whereas if you take someone in a drug trial who's, say, 65 years old and you run a four-year drug trial, They've had five, six decades of exposure to high LDL cholesterol already. You can only do so much when you intervene so late in life. And this, this plays back into this idea of just preventative you know, lifestyle medicine and trying to make these changes to our nutrition and our lifestyle as early as we can in our life because lifetime exposure to, to things like LDL cholesterol is really important. So if you had a person who had a lifetime exposure and it was high and then magically you just made it low, like with a magic switch, is there damage that's been done? Yeah, they've well, they have significant residual risk through the development of that plaque. It doesn't just go away. It doesn't just go away. So so atherosclerosis is 
you know, it's bubbling away underneath the surface for for decades. Sure, it becomes symptomatic perhaps when someone's in their 50s or 60s, but we know that the actual pathophysiology of that is occurring even in the fetus, depending on the, the mother's cholesterol levels and health, but certainly during the teenage years. And some of the early evidence for that was looking at Korean, the Korean War, looking at American soldiers and the post-mortem sort of analysis of these soldiers who were killed by a gun wound, looking at the condition of their cardiovascular system. These were on average 21-year-old males from America and seeing that many of them had substantial atherosclerosis. That was one of the sort of landmark studies that got people thinking, wow, you know, these, here, here's a group of people that we thought were fit and healthy, and they certainly looked it on the outside, but they were on the road to developing symptomatic cardiovascular disease. Can you have, because I guess this is what an argument the carnivore people make, can you have these really high levels and no plaque? I think you, yes, you, you can. So remember what we're looking at in these studies is the typical average response. There will always be outliers, 100%. But just because there's outliers does not, that doesn't mean that what we're seeing and what we're recommending to the public is wrong. I mean, do you, do you want to take the punt that you're an outlier? You know, it's, it's, it's possible that you are, but it's not probable. So just, just sit on that for a moment. You know, are you a, 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 a really, by the off chance, are you one of these outliers or are you more likely to have the typical response that we see? I guess the tiny nuance there is, can there be a contextual environment where, like where you would have that situation, but because you're in an, not an inflammatory state, you're not even forming. Like, I don't know to what effect is that genetics versus the environment that you create with your diet, the creation of plaque from the high levels. Yeah. So certainly, and I think this would, it would again, it would be foolish of us to, to just zoom in just on APOB and LDL cholesterol. Because as you just mentioned then, inflammation is important. There are other, blood pressure is another one that's really important. But what we know is that those other risks tend to, they tend to stack upon each other and increase your risk. However, what's absolutely necessary to develop atherosclerosis is elevated levels of LDL cholesterol, more specifically ApoB containing lipoproteins. And if you, if you, if, you're, if those levels are not elevated, we essentially do not see atherosclerosis. So my position and the position in the guidelines is why take the risk and, and, and elevate them to a level where you have increased numbers of these floating around, entering into the arterial wall, greater chance for retention, greater chance for plaque buildup, when there are very simple ways for most people, not everyone, because some people have genetically elevated levels, but there are very simple ways through lifestyle to shift them into a favorable direction. And if we look at a study like the PISA study out of Spain, which looked at subclinical atherosclerosis, so they took a group of people that were otherwise healthy and they looked at their LDL cholesterol levels and then they used ultrasound to look at subclinical atherosclerosis. So they were looking at plaque buildup in these healthy individuals. And what they saw was that at what your doctor would describe as normal, say 110, I think 110 milligrams per deciliter might be 100 or, or 115. You, uh, I can send you the graph. 
but at what your doctor would say is normal, about 50% of people had subclinical atherosclerosis. And it wasn't until you got to 70 milligrams per deciliter of an LDL cholesterol level where people where there was virtually no atherosclerosis. And that that piece of study finding, which came out a couple of years ago, is consistent going back to the earlier part of our conversation with Lauren Cordain, paleo diet author, who published a paper with Eaton and, and a few other colleagues that also went through and looked at cholesterol levels in babies, in chimpanzees, in humans that do not develop atherosclerosis. And the conclusion of that coming from the guy who wrote the paleo diet was that the optimal level of LDL cholesterol is 70 milligrams per deciliter. And so there's quite a, an extensive body of research that would suggest that if we could target that level at a population, we'd see huge reductions in cardiovascular disease. Yeah, that's the perspective I've sort of had, which is it just seems like playing with fire to have these really high levels, even if you think it's fine and and like a clear um, calcium artery score or whatever that it may be. It just seems, I don't know, seems dangerous. Yeah, and with the, with the, cal- the coronary artery calcium scan, again, I think one of the important things to consider is what's the utility of that. And when you're young and you haven't had many years exposure to elevated LDL cholesterol, let's say you're in your 30s and, and adopt a carnivore diet or early 40s, and you've been eating it for, for two or three years and had elevated levels for, for that period, there's, there's not enough time to see calcified plaque. So, so getting a, a, a coronary artery calcium score of zero. Like it should be zero. Yeah, it should be zero. So it's not, it's not that helpful for that, that individual at that point in time. Yeah. Great. I'm glad you pointed that out. I want to be respectful of your time. I might take you up on your offer if you want to come back in the future and touch on climate and environment. And I would like love to do a show on that. <laughs> One more just food related question because you've talked about this and I've heard you speak about it. And I, I don't think I've talked about it all on the show before. Nitrates and nitrites. I was wondering if you could just talk really briefly a little bit about that. I'm so fascinated by the difference in those from plants versus animal products. Right. So I guess in in animal products, nitrates are often used in the preservation, particularly in the kind of ultra-processed meats, deli meats and whatnot. And whereas in plant foods like, let's say, rocket or arugula, depending on where you're from, or beetroot, these are naturally rich in nitrates. And what's interesting is that actually the way that they're packaged and and within this food matrix affects how the body metabolizes them and the pathway that they go down. And so in short, when we're consuming these nitrates in plant foods that are packaged next to antioxidants, compounds like vitamin C, also polyphenols, we see the nitrates go down this pathway where they are acting as a precursor to nitric oxide. And nitric oxide is a, a really wonderful compound for our physiology. It helps lower blood pressure, improve vasodilation. We know that it increases blood flow to the brain and may have effects on cognition and the development or lack thereof of neurodegenerative diseases. 
Whereas the nitrates that are in these sort of pro- more processed uh, animal foods, and I don't think there's a lot of debate out there about ultra-processed meats being something that should be limited, if not avoided. But the the nitrates in those foods go down this other pathway, mostly because of what they're packaged with. And what I'd love to see, and I have asked uh, a few researchers about this, and I haven't seen much is, well, what about if you're eating those those meats with, for example, rocket or with beetroot. I think that's an interesting thing for us to to kind of look at. But what we what we see is that at least when you're consuming these meats by themselves or within a diet that doesn't contain a lot of antioxidants, that those nitrates end up being converted to N-nitroso compounds, which are thought to be carcinogenic. And this is kind of one of the proposed mechanisms that may help explain why we see an association between regular consumption of ultra-processed meats and colorectal cancer, for example. So all that to say is it's it's just a, a neat part of physiology, I guess, that similar compounds, depending on the food that they're in, can can go down different pathways and affect our physiology differently. Yeah, it's so fascinating. And now the label things is nitrate-free, but it'll technically be the same compound just from like celery, like basically like a reductionistic approach. But in any case, this has been so amazing. I could talk to you just for hours and hours. So maybe if you would like to come back in the future and we could tackle the climate stuff, that would be amazing. The last question I ask every single guest on this show, and it's just because I realize more and more each day how important mindset is. So what is something that you're grateful for? Oh, the ocean. So I'm, I'm currently up in Byron Bay. I spent a bit of time up here. It's sort of the north part of New South Wales on the northern coast there. I've been spending a fair bit of time surfing. So yeah, the the ocean is certainly something I'm very grateful for. I always feel great coming out. I love that. Well, thank you so much, Simon. I cannot thank you enough. This conversation was so like a sigh of relief. (laughs) I think people are going to feel so empowered and feel a lot better after listening. I cannot thank you enough for your work. And you have have a restaurant, correct? Yeah, I have a restaurant in Bondi, which is in Sydney in Australia, and that's called Eden Bondi. So if you're ever in the neighborhood, we'd love to have you in there. It's amazing. What links would you like to put out there for listeners to best follow your work? So if folks want to listen to more of what I have to say and and my guests, they can listen or tune in on The Proof. To your podcast. Yeah, The Proof podcast. On Twitter, I'm at The Proof and on Instagram at Simon Hill. Awesome. Well, we will put links to all that in the show notes. Thank you so much for your time and everything that you're doing. This was incredible. And I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. Thank you, Melanie. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. For more information, you can check out my book, What When Wine, Lose Weight and Feel Great with Paleo-Style Meals, Intermittent Fasting, and Wine, as well as my blog, MelanieAvalon.com. Feel free to contact me at podcast at MelanieAvalon.com. And always remember, you got this.